ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, Natasha Mitchell. This is Big Ideas. Welcome to you. We have one of those six degrees of separation stories for you today. Follow this thread that connects former Australian Prime Minister Gough Whitlam with acclaimed author Frank Hardy, with Aboriginal land rights activist Vincent Lingiari, the Mudborough people of the Northern Territory, the world's strongest man, Apollo, yes, and his publican sister, Thelma. It turns out the link is former ABC radio presenter and lawyer John Fain, because all these characters make an appearance in his latest book, Apollo and Thelma, A True Tall Tale, which shines a light on some of Australia's shameful history. When I started out to write the book, I thought I was writing about a redneck racist publican and her circus-performing brother. And it took me into places I had never anticipated. As I explored the history of Top Springs, I discovered it was one of the first Indigenous land claims by the Mudborough people with Justice Tui. And then it led me to think, well, who were those people and what was their story? And every time when I looked, there was a massacre. And every massacre I looked at started off with a rape. The stockmen, the Aboriginal stockmen would be sent bush with the cattle on muster and the white fellas would help themselves to their daughters, their wives, their mothers, it didn't matter. There would be a spearing in revenge. The spearing of the white man would trigger a massacre every single time. You can look through the records. There's a chapter that documents and quotes from the commissions of inquiry that were eventually insisted upon by missionaries and do-gooders, as they were called. And the pattern is undeniable. If we believe in truth-telling, this is the truth. John Fain is in conversation with my colleague Paul Barclay today on Big Ideas, where he will reveal his personal Indigenous connection and the intriguing research involved in writing his latest book, Apollo and Thelma. I first met Thelma Hawkes after she died. That's the opening line of the book. (laughs) And her brother the mighty Apollo introduced us and to tell you their story I have to tell you some of mine. That's how the book starts. And it really did start when I was a baby lawyer in the early 1980s on the 26th floor of 459 Collins Street in the city of Melbourne. I was working in a pretty rapacious commercial law firm called Barker Hardy and they don't exist anymore and most of them are dead so I can pretty much say what I like about them. And uh, I was told to look after this file because no one else was prepared to kind of get involved in the nitty-gritty of something so obscure. And in the 1980s, I knew nothing about the Northern Territory and Thelma had been the publican of this remote pub. It wasn't even on the map when we looked it up and there was no Google Earth or anything else at the stage. It was an, I had to go to the map shop in the city at lunchtime and buy a map of the Northern Territory and then we'd been told it was somewhere where it wasn't and eventually, I, with a magnifying glass, I found this speck at the intersection of two red dirt roads, two hours west of Catherine. Um, She'd been there for a long time. She was ferocious. She ran this place with a pearl-handled revolver in her pocket and survived on her own as a publican in the roughest imaginable environment for a very long time. So when she died and I was told by the beneficiaries of her estate, her brother and his sons, that the estate was complicated, that a policeman had stolen all the money and the pub was not being sold and it was all falling into disrepair and ruin and no one will answer our questions. We thought, well, this is a bit of a mystery. And even back then, I thought, what a great yarn. So when I left the law firm, I took the file with me. Usually you leave the clients for the next person who replaces you and I took it with me, I took it with me. In the end, I kept the file and years later, I thought, well, this story, I've got to put some flesh on the bones and piece together what turned into a very untidy jigsaw puzzle. Mm. So the Thelma file comes to you via the mighty Apollo. Yep. Paul Anderson Sr., I think is his real name. Paul Alexander McPherson Anderson. Okay. Yes. He and I think his three sons enter your office yep. uh, and Paul is seeking to get Thelma's estate unfrozen so that yep. his sons can be the beneficiary. They're, um, they're teenagers, they're underage, so he's their guardian. Yep. So tell us about, Paul, the mighty Apollo. Here is a guy who has a street named after him around the corner from where I live. He does now, but he didn't then. He didn't then. He came to fame because he used to do things like pull a tram along the tracks using his teeth. 
Tell us about the astonishing mighty Apollo and his feats of strength. He's one of the most enigmatic characters I've ever encountered. He's the only person to whom I've ever had to read his obituary to him. (laughs) That is a good story. You'll have to buy the book to find that out. He was five foot two, five foot three, built like a fire plug. He also had the world record for cars being driven over his body. He survived having an elephant stand on him. And he did things in his prime that no one else has ever been able to do. He carried a horse up a ladder, John. He carried a horse up a ladder and every time he'd tell me a story about what he could do and I'd say, oh, bullshit, Paul, and he'd produce his (laughs) clippings book. And there was photographic evidence and you'd look at it and go, but no one could do that. How could you do it? And he believed he had mystical powers. He believed that he had a gift and he believed that that enabled him to have a threshold for pain which no one else could possibly match. And even up to his 70s, he was performing feats of strength that no one else has ever been able to do. He's possibly the vainest man I've ever met, full of self-belief. Most of us entertain some self-doubt, except Jeff Kennett and Eddie Maguire, but he was incapable of self-doubt or anything else that in any way undermined his confidence in his own powers. And that's part of his secret. And his sons, um, and I should quickly say, the stories in the book about the sons are heartbreaking, and I hope we get to that. Yeah, we will. But they're a bit pissed off with me. They cooperated in the writing of this book. They gave me access to all of his archives and their personal stories. But in the book, I, I am not obsequious. I am not flattering entirely. I'm admiring of him, but I'm not uncritical of him. And they're a bit cross because they thought it would be a a hagiography and it's not. Well, I mean, you are very fond of him in the book, clearly. Well, he was very likeable, even though he was completely nuts. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested. You you decided early on that he was going to get the red carpet treatment from you as a lawyer. That's the, the description that you give in the book. What was it I mean, he was a curious person, obviously, strange, vain, uh, incredibly capable of these ridiculous feats of strength. But what was it, in essence, that fascinated you about him so much? Because as lawyers, you do get clients that come in the door that are interesting, odd people. But Not what me. about the mighty Apollo? No, no, most of your clients, I mean, most of my working day back then was sorting out a lease for a helicopter for an oil rig or, you know, a finance contract for a construction site or something. And it's deadly dull and anyone who tells you otherwise is basically lying and trying to make their life more interesting than it actually is. And I kind of felt a bit trapped. So when you had someone come in who was out of the mould and was much more of a character, you thought, oh, wow, I want to hang out with you a bit more. Um, So I was a commercial lawyer for four years and then I kind of hit the wall and decided this is not going to be the rest of my life. There's a few stories in the book about how precisely the penny dropped that I couldn't keep doing this forever. And I left and there was an opening in legal aid, so I went to work at Fitzroy Legal Service, which was a great passion of mine as a volunteer after hours. And I realised I was having more fun volunteering at night than I was sitting in the office during the day. So when an opening came up, I I jumped and went and thought I'd do that for a while. And after about three years of seven days a week, 18 hours a day, I not surprisingly burned out. And at around the same time, I'd hatched up with Jan, who was and still is, thank goodness, my wife. Um, she had a son and then we had another one and it was just incompatible. That work life was incompatible with my home life and so I left. Um, But I kept looking after the Anderson sons Mm. and Apollo for as long as they needed it, but then I lost touch with them. Um, But no, he got the red carpet treatment because he was such a character. He wasn't a suit. He wasn't on the make like most of the clients in a commercial law firm are. And then when I got to know him more and I became quite fond of him, I thought, well, I'm only going to get one mighty Apollo in my life and, (laughs) you know, I'll look after him. We'll talk more about him, more about Thelma, more about the kids, but let's just circle back to to the the will itself. Very, very complicated. Why was it so complicated? And apart from the Top Springs pub and roadhouse itself, what, what was at stake? So when Thelma died, and she died of an asthma attack, so very suddenly... And she was found, she lived in an apartment above the pub and no one was ever allowed to go in there, not even her sidekick who'd been with her for years and years and years, the um, alcoholic Englishman, Norm Douglas, who worked non-stop around the clock in the pub. And the pub was one of those places, I don't know if any of you have been to any of these remote territory pubs, there's always some character sitting at the bar who never moves, Mm. except from the elbow up. 
and everyone's drunk the whole time. Um, this pub had no glass in the windows, just chicken wire. Um, the bar was concrete. The floor was concrete. The chairs were brick. And at the end of every day, they just hosed the place out. Mm. It was as rough as it gets. Yep. Thelma survived there. Well, she started it with her husband, Sid, who gets a chapter to himself but really should get a book. Thelma, um, she met Sid during the war. He was in the Air Force and they became a couple and then as the war finished, he'd been in a plane crash in rehab, he was retrained and he'd worked out that from a mate in the army told him there was going to be a railway line between... <laughs> Alice Springs and Darwin was going to be built in the next few years. This is 1949. And whoever set up shops where there were going to be stops would make a fortune. And they were told that because of the Vesties cattle stations, do you know about the Vestie cattle empire? The English expat, well, not expat, sorry, foreign landlords of cattle stations at that stage in the territory that are sort of the size of Austria. Um, they were going to be sending cattle to the railhead to catch the train down south and there would be a fortune to be made if you could establish a, a trading post. So they went and got a, everything they could find and threw everything in the back of a truck and went up and set up a, um, a store. No permits or licences or nothing as ridiculous as acquiring the land. Um, and then over many, many years it became a very successful business. Inevitably, and there's so many twists and turns, so I'm cutting it yeah. very much abbreviated. Um, there are a number of suspicious fires and, you know, there was a fire and the place had to be rebuilt much better and she was charged with arson at one stage but got a smart-ass lawyer up from Melbourne and got off and all this sort of stuff. There's so many twists and tales. But eventually she and Sid fell out, not surprisingly, over money. Sid took the trucks and she kept the pub and she ran it on her own for years and years and years. She stayed in touch with her only, well, she had several siblings, but Apollo and Thelma, so Thelma and Alex, but known as Apollo by everybody, they maintained a, a close relationship. And so when she died, her will left everything to his sons. But along the way, the lawyer who had made the will, who was the executor, had been struck off for fraud. So because she lived so remote, she couldn't go and make a new will. She just crossed out that clause heavily with a pen. And it was apparently her intention when she could get time to get to Darwin, which was only a seven-hour drive away after all, each way, she was going to make another will, but she died. Mm. Now, the lawyers here, and I'm sure there's many you'll all know, and for the rest of you, it's fairly straightforward. If you start tampering with a will, it invalidates the entire document. So the public trustee of the Northern Territory stepped in to administer the will. In her estate was the pub, which was the freehold that it had since become, plus a very valuable liquor licence. This was one of the most lucrative licences in Australia for reasons that don't take much imagining to work out. She basically sold Sly Grog to blackfellas mm. for vastly inflated prices and supplied alcohol to the entire Victoria River region at ridiculous prices. You paid for beer, you paid more if you wanted it cold, you paid more again if you were a tourist and you paid more again if you were Aboriginal. And they're prodigious she, drinkers in the Northern Territory. Apparently. I, I had no idea. Um, yeah. Comes as a terrible surprise. Um, but she then left that, those assets, bank accounts in almost every capital city in Australia diamonds, opals, pearls, rubies, numbered mint pre-decimal currency notes, on and on the list. The inventory of the estate was hilarious. Mm. And it was all left. She, she claimed to leave the... Now, this is the, the legal twist. The, the licence of the pub was held by a company that had two shares. And one was hers and the other was left to Norm Douglas. Mm. But the company was called Wanda Inn, haha, Proprietary Limited, but for reasons to do with a massive tax debt unpaid, it had been wound up and replaced with Top Springs Trading. And she didn't give Norma share in Top Springs Trading, although he didn't know. 
he worked for nothing on the basis that the deal between them was that when she died or sold the pub, he'd get half. When she died, he got nothing. So he sued us and we litigated that for years. Mm. So you've got Norm disputing the will. You've yep. got a crooked lawyer. You've actually also got, which we don't have time to talk about, a crooked copper caught with his hand oh. in the till stealing some of the money of the inheritance. The frog, the dog and the cop, chapter one, yep. Uh, we, we won't talk about it, need to read that bit in the book. Uh, you need to go to the Territory to help sort this out, so you, yep. you head up there. So I'm, then... I'm in my office in Melbourne and the public trustee of the Northern Territory is on the phone, John Flynn, Flynn of the Outback, I had to call him, didn't I? And Flynn says, look, it's just all too complicated, John, you'll have to get up here. So I go and see my boss and say, they want me to go to Darwin. And the boss says, well, I don't care if they pay your hourly fee for the time you're away and your travel, off you go. So I go home to the share house in Fitzroy I'm living in with a bunch of other people I went to uni with. And if I'd had a pith helmet and a safari suit, I reckon I would have taken it. I get on a plane to Darwin, get off the plane to meet John Flynn. And there's this man in a pair of knee-high white socks and shorts and a shirt with epaulettes. And I reckon he takes one look at me getting off the plane in my polyester shirt. And I'm, how old am I? I'm like, you know, 28 or something, 27. And he looks at me and goes, oh, shit, they've sent the office boy. What am I going to do with this clown? <laughs> and Flynn says, well, welcome to Darwin. And we have to go off. We have an immediate meeting with someone who we need to meet who wants to buy the pub, but he's flying out to Indonesia. So we do that. Of course, all of this is done over multiple beers and I'm not a big drinker. And then he says, so have you been to the Territory before, John? And I go, no, I haven't. You haven't been to Darwin? No. You've been to the Outback? No. Right. Well, I'll have to introduce you to a few, you know, like how we do things here and we'll have to go down to Top Springs, which I was not expecting. Um, I thought we, I was going to Darwin to meet with the Department of Social Security because she'd been on an old age pension for years, even though she wasn't old enough and ran a business. She hadn't paid tax for eight years and we had to meet the tax office and the accountant and on and on it goes. So I thought I had a round of business meetings and then Flynn says, no, we're going to have to go down to Top Springs. So if you haven't been to Darwin and you haven't been to the Territory, John, I guess you haven't been to an Outback pub before. And I go, no, no, it's all new to me, John. He goes, well, there's not much point going down to Top Springs if that's the only pub you've ever seen. So we'll have to visit a few others on the way. Mm. I don't remember arriving at Top Springs. <laughs> and, I mean, it is amusing, but I get the impression this is also the first time you confront head-on racism, serious racism, when you, when you arrive in the Territory and what you see on that journey. I'd never been anywhere like that. Um, I lived in Fitzroy. I used to have to walk past people homeless people, mostly Indigenous, on my way to the tram in the morning, but um, I'd never, I don't think I'd ever had a conversation with someone who was Aboriginal. And uh, up there, I, we get out of the car and, you know, we're sort of wandering around and they're saying, oh, there's a donger over there where you can sleep and it was a bit like cadet camp kind of accommodation, you know, the mattress was like that. I mean, it's pretty rough. Mm. Um, I think it was a pie and chips for dinner, nothing flash, in fact, worse than that. But then they, they, I said, oh, look, you know, I need to stretch my legs. And they said, oh, no, don't go around the back. There's dogs chained up there. And I go, oh, yeah, I like dogs. And they said, not these ones you won't, mm. you know. And these are dogs for blackfellas. Mm. They're dogs to break up fights. Uh, and the whole framing of it is just completely new to me. And Aboriginal people are not allowed inside the roadhouse. No, she'll inside. sell them grog, but they're not, in the, not allowed in the bar. And quite frankly, I think if she was still alive and still trading, I doubt her attitudes would have changed. She was, um, and again, the, the sons, her nephews, who are in their 50s now, don't appreciate the fact that I have quoted many people who lived and worked with Thelma, who, quote, who openly say, oh no, she was a racist redneck publican in an outback pub, surprise, surprise. And um, that's what she was, and she was not the only one, and she wasn't then, and she wouldn't be now. But you do struggle to get a handle on exactly who Thelma is. Yep. I mean, in a way, you've just given us a, a thumbnail sketch of a type of person that she was. But throughout the book, you try to get who is Thelma. Well, I never met her. So, yeah. you know, um, so I'm trying to find out, yeah, what, who, who can I find who knew Thelma Hawkes 
and all the time I'm working at the ABC, whenever I get to go up to Darwin, either for the law report or later on for other reasons, which are explained in the book, there are many trips to Darwin, and uh, I'm always on the lookout. I'm always scouting around for any old-timer, and anyone, even to this day, anyone I meet, who says, oh, yeah, I grew up in Alice Springs, oh, yeah, I grew up in Darwin, or, oh, yeah, my dad had a job as a bank manager. I go, oh, did you ever go to Top Springs? And it is astonishing how many times I'll meet someone who says, oh, yeah, I had my 21st birthday there, or, oh, yeah, we went and bought some petrol or whatever it might be. I mean, it is very remote. It's the nearest pub to what used to be called Wave Hill. And Wave Hill, many of you will go, I know that name. Mm. Gough Whitlam pouring dirt into the hands of an Aboriginal stockman called Vincent Lingiari, the Gurindji from little things, big things grow, that's Wave Hill. So Thelma's pub is just up the road from what's now called Kalkaringi and Dagaragu. And she was the nearest pub to Wave Hill, which then brings us into the whole Gurindji story. Mm. And the Gurindji story brings us to Frank Hardy. Yeah. And Frank Hardy brings us to a whole lot of other things. And I did warn you it's untidy and, you know, Paul, we can, which way do you want to go? Okay, but so let, let's all of this is, is yep. part of the story. It, it is indeed. You've mentioned Frank Hardy, of course, author of the scandalous book Power Without Glory that saw him prosecuted for criminal libel back in the day. Uh, as you say... Scandalous, this, scandalous according to some people. According to some people. Great, it's a great book. It is absolutely fabulous. It's, I can't recommend it enough. So writer, activist communist. Tell us how you came to meet Frank Hardy and what you made of him when you, when you first met him. So the circles keep colliding. I've left law and joined the ABC as the law reporter in 1989. And I'm hosting the law report. And one of the things you have to do as well as your weekly program and contributing to other people's shows is you have to do a summer series. So they have to be timeless so they can be heard over and over again and at any time, but they're not current. They're not about recent events the way the weekly program is supposed to be. So I decide at a law conference, there's a QC, an old QC, who's giving the, the after-dinner speech and it's, it's hilarious. And so I hear this old QC giving, a story, giving a, a, an after-dinner speech and go, is anyone recording this? And they all look at me like I'm a lunatic. And I said, all this stuff should be recorded. And so I decide to start recording the oldest lawyers I can find telling those sorts of stories that they tell at after-dinner speeches. And I travel around Australia for a book that's called Taken on Oath and an, a summer series on Radio National called Taken on Oath. And one of those I meet and interview is the legendary advocate, Sir John Stark, who is long retired and down at Mount Eliza. I go down to Mount Eliza, I interview him at length and... It's transcribed in the book and it is a, a hilarious interview. And in the interview, he tells so many stories about different cases he was involved in, one of which was as junior counsel in the criminal libel defamation, the prosecution of Frank Hardy in Power Without Glory. When it goes to air, Hardy hears it. And Hardy gets in touch and says, that's me he's talking about, as if I need to be told. What else did he say? Can I come in and listen to the unedited interview with Sir John Stark, not just the bit you put to air? I'm going, Frank Hardy? <laughs> Shit, yeah, in you come. Yep. And I'm sitting knee to knee in a little booth with reel-to-reel -reel tapes with Frank Hardy frantically making notes on the back of the form guide about all the things he wants to clarify with Sir John Stark. And at the end of the interview, he says to me, would Stark talk to me? So I ring up Stark and say, Hardy wants to meet up with you to talk about his case. And Stark says, well, I'm as bored as batshit down here. Any visitor is welcome, even one as crazy as Hardy. <laughs> so I go around to Cardigan Street with a Holden Commodore from the ABC and sound gear, pick up Frank Hardy from where he's living. He gets in the car smoking on his pipe. Before we pull out from the street, I say, look, Frank, sorry, it's an ABC car, you're not allowed to smoke. Hardy says, I'm either smoking and we're going to Mount Eliza or I'm not smoking and you can let me out at the next pub. And I go, no, it's an ABC car, you're not allowed to smoke. He says, fine, I'll get out then. And I go, oh, roll the window down, keep the pipe out the window. We go down to Mount Eliza, um, Stark and Hardy go at each other for hours. It's just hilarious. At one stage, 
Stark offers us a cup of tea and I go in to help into the kitchen. Stark walks on two sticks. He's quite disabled. He gets out into the kitchen. Hardy's back in the other room putting some bets on. And Stark <laughs> leans over to me. He's very, very tall. Leans over and he says, and Stark, I might say, he is the most garrulous person you could ever meet. He's absolutely amazing. And Stark leans over and says, he can't half talk, can he? <laughs> anyway, I get absolute gold from them, put it all to air. And Stark and Hardy, you know, they cast more light because Hardy believes there was a massive Catholic conspiracy in the police force to put him in jail for daring to upset Cardinal Knox, Cardinal Mannix, sorry. Um, so he's trying to track this down and prove it. And then one day I wake up and the news says that the legendary Australian author Frank Hardy has died of a heart attack overnight. Mm. And I'm in shock because we were working, you know, I saw him last week, we're working together. So I get some flowers and go around to Jenny Barrington, his partner in Carlton, and drop some flowers at the door and um, the family are all gathered there and a day later they ring up and say, that was really nice of you, thank you. Um, we're going to put on a public service for Frank's life with the ABC Record It. And I said, Record It? Why don't we broadcast it? Mm. And I find myself as the MC at Frank Hardy's funeral. And at Frank Hardy's funeral, you At Frank Hardy's to... funeral, there's speeches from his family, his friends, from... Gough Whitlam? Gough Whitlam, who, with tears rolling down his cheeks, says it was Hardy who opened my eyes to Indigenous disadvantage with his book, The Unlucky Australians, which is another book, if you've not read, is astonishing. So that iconic image of uh, Vincent Lingari and Gough Whitlam would not have happened if it hadn't been for Frank Hardy introducing the plight of the Gurindji to Gough Whitlam. He was the self-appointed publicist for the Gurindji. So going back a little step, after Power Without Glory and he was found not guilty and there's a great story from Stark in the book about why, how he found out what the jury were thinking when they said not guilty for Hardy. I'll leave that for you as a teaser. And um, Hardy has writer's block. He's drinking too much, he's gambled the family's money, his wife's thrown him out and he goes on the road looking for a solution. He hitchhikes with truckies all the way up and in the Northern Territory, he's on the way to Darwin for the annual yarn spinners competition where he defeats Tall Tales Tyrrell to be the best <laughs> yarn spinner in Australia. But on his way, he meets Robert Tudwali, a name that may resonate with some of you, the Australian iconic film Jeddah which is Romeo and Juliet and Aboriginal protagonists. Robert Tudwali is one of the stars of Jeddah. Hardy meets him where else but in a pub. Tudwali tells him about the Gurindji struggle and introduces him to Dexter Daniels, the only Indigenous trade union official shop steward in Australia. Dexter Daniels tells Hardy about the Gurindji who have been on strike by that stage for years without anyone saying a word about it or knowing anything about it. Hardy immediately gets a ride down and inserts himself into Wave Hill, inserts himself into the Gurindji walk-off and starts using his networks in the Communist Party, the Labor Party, the trade union movement in the East Coast capitals to publicise the Gurindji walk-off, which otherwise no one would ever have known about. Mm. And so many footnotes, two days ago in the tent, I saw Gareth Evans, who was the ministerial advisor to Gordon Bryant, the Minister for Indigenous Aboriginal Affairs, the first Minister for Aboriginal Affairs in the Whitlam government. And there was Gareth and I said, oh, you know, you're in the book, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, oh, copper. Yeah, I mean, he said, it's the best work I ever did. And Gareth's done a fair bit. I mean, it's amazing yeah. how many wheels within wheels there are in this whole thing. Frank Hardy's daughter Shirley summed it up beautifully when I did an event in Castlemaine about when this book was first launched. Um, she said, well, what you have to understand is that Hardy was a writer in search of a story. He was a writer who couldn't write and the Gurindji had a story they couldn't tell. Mm. And it was perfect. They were made for each other and they came together and that's why we got land rights. But this is serendipitous as, as, as accidental as that. If Hardy hadn't met Tudwali or hadn't been introduced to Dexter Daniels or had said, no, I'm going to go back to Melbourne or whatever, history would be different. I was going to say, we're getting the sense of how non-linear your story is. It's as untidy uh, as my mind, yes. You know, so book. you've got the Gurindji 
who of course are on Wave Hill, which of course is just near the Top Springs pub, which Thelma owned and died, and this is the estate that you're seeking so, to unravel. So uh, while while one of the Garingi Hopperingiari is giving a eulogy to Frank Hardy at the funeral in Collingwood Town Hall, after Gough Whitlam has sobbed his way on my shoulder down the stairs, it hits me that Thelma's pub and the Garingi and the walk-off and Frank Hardy were all there at the same time and Thelma must have met Hardy. And I start, when I start writing this book, I'm looking for where they would have met because the shit-stirring communist agitator and the redneck publican, it would have been fantastic. So I go trawling through unlucky Australians looking for any reference to Top Springs and there's hardly anything. Mm. And I'm bitterly disappointed until it dawns on me. The fact that it's not mentioned is as significant as if it was because they didn't want to go there yeah because they were not welcome you also make the point early in the book we haven't spoken about this that your son is aboriginal yep and that this was a part of the motivation for you to tell this story in a particular way so in 30 years on abc radio 23 of them in the morning show we covered indigenous affairs almost all the time. Um, the fact that Nigel, uh, my stepson, but my son, uh, is Bunjalung was never thought by me to be a good thing to disclose. First of all, he didn't particularly want to be a public figure and still doesn't. And I had to carefully negotiate that part of this, that those mentions of him and his story and his family's story are, uh, are not mine to tell. But with his permission, I thought it was relevant and in context to reveal that now. And I've been asked many times, well, why didn't you ever talk about it when you're on air? And the answer is because I think in many people's minds, they would have then pigeonholed me and discounted what I might say as having an emotional interest, which I did have. Mm. But I thought it was better that what I said was taken at face value. I had some ferocious arguments with colleagues behind the scenes and I had some ferocious confrontations with people on air about what I believe to be the inherently racist underpinnings of much of our culture. And I thought it would be unhelpful if I was dismissed as someone who was, oh, you're just being emotional about it. So I never did. Yeah, you write toward the end of the book, chasing stories about Thelma and Top Springs took me on a trip, not just down a dusty dirt road, but into that, my own not that distant past. I cannot unsee these stories. So to some extent, Apollo and Thelma opens a door for you yes. to understand how important it is that we tell the truth about our past. When I started out to write the book, I thought I was writing about a redneck racist publican and her circus performing brother. And it took me into places I had never anticipated. As I explored the history of Top Springs, I discovered it was one of the first Indigenous land claims by the Mudbara people with Justice Tui. And Thelma objected to a land claim. Of course she did over Top Springs um, and her objections were put aside. And then it led me to think, well, who were those people and what was their story? And every time when I looked, there was a massacre and every massacre I looked at started off with a rape. And then when I went to Kalkaringi, the documents of the petition from the Garingi people that Hardy helped them write to Governor Casey, the document is there on the wall in the community centre. And everyone, those of you familiar already with the Garingi struggle, it is, it is recognised universally as being about land and wages. And then people go, oh, and dignity. That's right, it was about land and wages and dignity. And when you read the petition, there's a fourth thing and no one mentions it. And the document typed on the page, on the wall, there it is. This is about dignity, it's about land, it's about wages and to protect our women are the four words that have been airbrushed out because it's just too hard. And when you ask what was that about, you hear the oral histories and you talk to the old people the, the stockman, the Aboriginal stockman would be sent bush with the cattle on muster and the white fellas would help themselves to their daughters, their wives, their mothers, it didn't matter. When you go to look at every massacre, a dingo trapper, a buffalo hunter, a prospector for minerals would help themselves, whatever, to an Aboriginal girl or woman 
there would be a spearing in revenge. The spearing of the white man would trigger a massacre every single time. You can look through the records. There's a chapter that documents and quotes from the commissions of inquiry that were eventually insisted upon by missionaries and do-gooders, as they were called. And the, the pattern is undeniable. If we believe in truth-telling, this is the truth. And from my own personal journey, I sat there staring at my screen in the Abbotsford convent where I was writing this book. And I had to decide, I can't unsee this. Do I continue the silence? Mm. Do I brush it aside as too hard? Or do I put it in there and find a way to make it relevant and in context so it doesn't just jump out at people? I don't know if I've succeeded, that's up to you. But I think much as yes, indeed, no, don't Aboriginal people quite rightly like disabled people or whoever else now say nothing about us without us, which is quite right. But every Australian citizen, particularly those of us who care, have an obligation to learn out the true history of this country. No one was ever going to stand up in your history class in high school and talk about this stuff, and we still don't. But we, South Africa's done it, New Zealand's done it, Canada's done it, everyone else has done it. Why can't we? Mm. Yeah. It's a very important part of the story, John. I mean, I lived in the Northern Territory for several years, so I know how easy it is to poke fun at the archetypal Territorian and the stories about the Territory and the, the, three Thelma, the Thelma type of characters. Uh, but to draw it to that much more important history of where we came from, how we haven't addressed uh, our past is, is really important. Let's circle back, though. You mentioned earlier that you didn't want to let this discussion go without talking about Apollo's kids. Yep. Uh, Apollo comes into your office essentially because he wants to look after the financial interests of his kids. But tell us about the relationship Apollo had to his kids because uh, yep. they didn't grow up with him, did they? Um, when I met them, the eldest, Paul Jr., was about to turn 18 and his brothers were each a few years younger and they were living in care. And I was told my instructions, lawyers follow instructions, my instructions were to litigate ferociously to protect as much of the estate as possible for the benefit of the boys and then distribute it equally to them as they turned 18, which I did. And I had no idea what their lives were like and it was not relevant. And Apollo, who I would visit from time to time for instructions, was living in a gym in North Melbourne, which is still, the building is still there and it's known as the Mighty Apollo Gym and Combat Centre. Um, the Scavell family who own it have maintained the facade and it's probably going to be National Trust or something listed. It's fantastic. It's all still there. Although the internals have all been renovated and beautifully too. Um, so I would go and visit Apollo, get, up, get instructions, get updates. And for years and years and years, I just... The only contact I had with the sons was to um, send them money when it came available and so on. Years later, through a circuitous route to do with my personal passion for collecting old cars and motorbikes, I stumbled on a whole lot of Mighty Apollo artefacts that it turned out had been thrown out of the gym when Apollo died. His sons had emptied out the gym, just chucked all his stuff away. And I met someone at the Bendigo swap meet who had it, who'd pulled it out of the skip and kept it, and they were selling it. And so I managed to get it all back to the sons. And that's when I made contact again and said, you know, I've got to tell this story. No one, I mean, people can tell the story of Apollo, but no one can tell the link to Thelma. It's only me and I feel an obligation to tell this story. And then I learned their story, which I'd never known. When Bruce, the youngest, was five and his brothers were seven and eight, respectively, their mother disappeared, vanished. One day she dropped them at school and didn't come to pick them up. And they were picked up by the police when the teachers called the police. The police took them back to their father and their father had a nervous breakdown. She'd shot through because on the same day, one of his karate instructors in the gym also vanished. So Apollo's wife, the lovely, the beautiful Rhonda, who was, you know, sort of the sidekick to the act, uh, Rhonda just shot through and abandoned these three boys. And as I asked them about their story and got them to tell it, um, the oldest one, Paul, will not say her name and will not call her mum or mother or anything else. She's the incubator. 
Now, I've been around, I've done lots of things, I've met lots of people with extraordinary stories. I've never met anybody who calls their mother the incubator and will not say her name. The youngest one, Bruce, when I'm interviewing him for the book and I ask him about his mother, he says, ah, Rhonda, the bitch, she ruined my life. I hope she rots in hell. And I draw my breath and go, okay, Bruce, that's, I understand the emotion, I totally understand, but what do you want me to put in the book? Rhonda, the bitch, she ruined my life. I hope she rots in hell. Mm. Are you sure, Bruce? Rhonda, the bitch, <laughs> she ruined my life. I hope she rots in hell. Did you get it down? Word perfect, John. Mm. And that is the level at which the damage done to these three now men mm is the defining feature of their lives. And so there's this other whole story about what happened to these three young boys abandoned, who then, not surprisingly, are fiercely protective of the parent who stayed with them, their father, although he put them in care, because as he said, he could not look after them. Mm. Um, and as Bruce says, you know, he was an amazing man, but he was a rotten father. If you asked him the time, he'd tell you how a Swiss watch worked. You know, he just didn't have a clue and he was obsessed with his career. He was, he was always on the make for fame and, you know, I, mean, what I say in the book that there were these two depression-era kids from inner-city Melbourne, from Clifton Hill Collingwood. One sought fame and the other sought fortune. Apollo sought fame, Thelma sought fortune. They both found it. But at Top Springs, there's not even a mention of Thelma Hawkes anymore, but Apollo finding fame is immortalised. Now there's a street named after him, there's a building with his sign writing preserved probably for perpetuity, and now at least his story. And I hope reflecting well on him, it pains me deeply that his sons are not endorsing the book mm. and they're upset that their father's portrayed in a way that I think is overwhelmingly positive, but they say no. You said he was vain, how dare you? To which I go, well, come on, fellas, be real. He's the mm. vainest man I've ever known. He's got scrapbooks that are this high off the ground about everything he ever did, for instance, and so on. But they, they weren't happy and I'm deeply troubled, deeply upset about that. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a fraught business writing these stories. Yeah, don't write about yeah. people who are still alive. Uh, Not worth it. Uh, we're not going to get to anywhere near all of the elements of the story and I do want to take some questions from you in just a moment. But one of the things... We haven't talked about Jeff Kennett. Haven't spoken about Jeff Kennett, how you... John Howard. End, end, ...ended his uh, political career, quite, it's, quite it's possibly. A it's, it's a very untidy book, I promise you. Uh, but but it does all fit together. Does, what, well, it does it, Paul? One of the things, one, one of the things I wanted to... You could to just say about. yes. Yes, it does. It does. <laughs> it's a great tale. No pressure. Uh, uh, it's a partly the story of you too, though, John. Oh, yeah. And it's yeah. partly the story of you turning your back on the law and becoming a broadcaster, you yeah. say that you always expected this detour to be brief, but it lasted 20 years. Uh, reading the book, I couldn't help but get the impression that you ponder what if you'd uh, stayed in the yeah, law. Yeah, a little bit. Overall, any regrets that you didn't stay on that path? None at all. Uh, I, I mean, and you're right, when I left the ABC after 30 years broadcasting, 23 of it just in the morning shift and all the other things I did, um, I was asked to write a, an autobiography and I just scoffed at it and went, look, Kerry O'Brien can write an autobiography but no one gives a shit about mine and I'm not going to do that, apart from which you don't spend 30 years doing something and then as soon as you leave, immediately start reliving it. You know, I wanted to look through the windscreen, not the rearview mirror. So I said no, but I wanted to write this book and then as I wrote it, they said, can you put a bit more of yourself in? Can you link up some of these threads with a few stories here and there? And in fact, I found it to be kind of fun. Mm. And speaking of Jeff Kennett, I got to settle a few scores too. So, um, gee, how did that slip out? But uh, it does give you, I mean, telling, writing a book and telling some stories gives you a chance to express yourself it's a great privilege when people read it. And as I say, I mean, I'm more a storyteller than an actual writer. But once I got into it, I thought this is really handy. And it has become a vehicle for me to kind of explain myself in a way, yes. But there are things that you can do in the law that you can't do as a broadcaster. And, and vice versa. True. Uh, anyone got a question for John? Hi, John. I loved your talk. I've got a 
probably a very silly question, but I was intrigued by Thelma and what was in her room and why she'd kept it locked. It was full of treasure. Apart from which, and this is the, the cop and the dog and the frog, there was a suitcase full of cash. So where she lives and where she trades is hours from the nearest bank. And she's running a cash business, there's no bank. So she had vast sums of money in cash, in a suitcase, in her room, and no one was allowed in. And when they did go in, and this is the dog and the cop and the frog, um, stuff goes missing. And that's why she kept it locked and people were forbidden from going in there. And a copper goes to jail. A copper goes to jail. Oh, did I spend time trying to find him? I can't yeah. tell you. Yeah. Anyway. Just another element to the story we haven't got time to talk about. But let's take another question. Thanks for a wonderful book and a really interesting chat, John. Um, I'm just curious because you've been, you know, involved with the story of Apollo and Thelma, you know, for so long now, um, from from the law years, you know, right through to now. Is this the closing chapter? For you, um, and if so, how do you feel about saying goodbye to Apollo and Thelma? It's not the closing chapter for me, but I have put this one to bed. Um, although, if you do persevere with the book, there's an afterword. How long have I got? Um, on, the, on the day I was posting some photos to the publishers after the book was sent to the printers and they just needed some photos, I bumped into someone who gave me a missing piece in the jigsaw puzzle. I'm in my car out the front of the post office, mm. ringing the editor saying, ah, can you take another chapter? And they go, no, it's at the typesetters. It's being laid the out. Presses. Yeah, it's been, the pages have been set. And I said, but I've got to write a postscript. And it's in there. They allowed me another couple of pages. But yeah, I, uh, since it came out, I've met so many people with stories about both Apollo and Thelma but there won't be a sequel. Thank you for the invitation, but there won't be. Uh, and spoiler alert, the inheritance does get sorted out. <laughs> Good afternoon, John, and I've lavished both of your programs. I've loved your programs. Thank you. I also love the book. Thank you. And as I read the book and as I hear you talk about it, I wonder how on earth did you plan the book? How did you manage with all the different themes mm. to get into what I can tell you is a very compelling narrative? Oh, well, thank you. That's very generous. Um, publishers and editors exist, exist to save authors from themselves. Um, there were multiple drafts. I wrote the first draft of this book and submitted it and they said, look, the first third of it's okay and then it all falls apart. What happened? And I said, oh, that's when my father died. Sorry, but I kind of lost my way. And they went, well, we're sorry your father died, of course, but that's not going to work when it comes out in print. So then I had another go and submitted a second draft and they said, well, now you've got two thirds of a book, but then it all falls apart. What happened? I said, oh, that's when my mother died. And they go, is this a cat ate my homework oh. kind of thing? And I went, no, it's all true. And they went, well, you've got to do this and you've got to do that. And this is where good publishers and good editors work with an author, not against an author, and I am indebted to them for whatever it is you make of the, the end product. Um, it would not have been like this without their interventions. But writing a book, and I'm sure many of you want to write a book and I encourage you to do so, as long as you know what's involved, it means locking yourself in a room for months and months and months and sitting or standing as I did at a desk for many more hours than you want to when you'd rather be doing something else. And if you're not prepared to do that, don't start. Mm. Uh, hello, uh, Paul and John. My name's Steve. Hi, Steve. Um, you've done well not mentioning anything about cars. <laughs> um, being a, also a classic enthusiast, is there any surprises? I haven't read the book yet. Yes, is there, there are. Anything you could just quickly... Uh, no, that's another book. Um, that's another book. But there is a bit about the swap meet and there's a bit about a BMW, a 1950 R50 BMW, 1955 R50 BMW uh, motorbike. But um, I'm acutely aware, Steve, that you and I share an interest that almost nobody else here gives a flying rats about. And much as I could explain, oh, well, we've got another one. 
Okay, well, we'll, we'll meet up over here afterwards. But um, especially if you know if there's an old, you know, between the wars sports car in a shed somewhere, I'm very happy to hear from you. But I always used to joke when people said, oh, you just make the program like it's a great indulgence. And I go, no, if I made the radio program for me, it would be about between the wars French sports cars every day, but I wouldn't have an audience. Mm. Much as I love tinkering and breaking old cars, I fully understand that most people just, you know, they, their eyes glaze over. So, yeah, I, I do do a, I, I write for a car magazine. I've just come back from a car show. Um, I play with, I'm restoring a 1926 Citroen. I've got another one that's on the go. Uh, but most people just don't care. Uh, many Citroens on the side of the road up, up to... Um, up to Alice Springs, no. But if, if you followed my career, there is an earlier book called From Here to There, which documents a road trip where... Um, our younger son, Jack, and I drove from our front gate to London overland in, um, what, 15 or so years ago. And um, that book, From Here to There, um, look, it's available for about $1.99 in most op shops, but um, that was kind of fun. And uh, I'm enormously glad I did it because if I get hit by the proverbial lightning bolt uh, and I go, I go, well, at least I didn't leave that one on the table waiting to be done. And, you know, life... I once interviewed Paul Cox, the filmmaker, you know, Man of Flowers and all that. I interviewed Paul Cox, who was dying and knew he was dying and was about to go into palliative care. And as well as talking about his films and culture and art and all the rest of it, I asked him, so, Paul, what's it about? What's it about? And I live by this. He said, you know, John, all there is in life is love and laughter. And it's absolutely true. If you want to do something and you have the option of doing it, get on with it. Don't put it off. Don't say I'm going to do it one day or I'll put that one on the back burner because you just might not get there. Been great talking to you, John. Been fantastic being at Adelaide Festival. My colleague, Paul Barclay, in conversation with former ABC broadcaster and lawyer John Fain with such an intricately woven story and a reckoning with the colonial oppression of this continent's first people. And if you're struck by this story, we'd love you to share what you hear on Big Ideas. You can do that through the ABC Listen app. If you haven't downloaded it already, just head to whatever app store you get your apps from, download it to your phone, search for Big Ideas, follow us by hitting the love heart, and uh, then every episode will come your way. You can share episodes from in there too on your social media. Bye from me, Natasha Mitchell. It's always great to have your company for Big Ideas. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.